House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. Welcome to the latest edition of Capital Ideas. We'll have another one in a few days, but for now, this is the latest. Capital Ideas is the podcast where members of the Majority Democratic Caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol to talk about ideas. The guest today is State Representative Tina Orwall. Tina lives in Des Moines and works for the constituents in the 33rd District. She also works for the entire state, both as the sponsor of good legislation that has no particular geographic limitations and as Speaker Pro Tem of the Washington House of Representatives. We recorded this last week, shortly after the 2022 session of the legislature adjourned for the year, and here goes. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Tina Orwall of the 33rd Legislative District. I am really glad you're here. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's great to be here. Thank you, Dan. Usually when I do one of these podcasts, I've made a few notes on the person I'm about to speak with, and I know them anyway, and so I kind of know where I'm going to be going. When I talk to you, I don't even know where to start because you to me, seem to be one of the busiest legislators in the entire state capitol. You are the Speaker Pro Tem, so you preside over most floor action in the House. You are a leader in several different kinds of legislation. A lot of, a lot of members might be the, the number one legislator in issue X. You tend to have your hand in so many pies that that are all, I think, united with a concern for people. That's a real general term, so let me be more specific. Every year, you sponsor legislation, it seems like, that has to do with sexual assault kits and the backlog on these very important crime-fighting tools that we have that aren't utilized enough. You've been involved in suicide prevention for many years, Uh, you're the leading anti-trafficking legislator in Olympia. You've worked on behalf of people wrongly convicted. You've worked on behalf of veterans. You've worked on behalf of suicide prevention. How do you do it, and why do you do it? Well, I have to just start with saying thank you. Those are incredibly kind words, and, you know, I think one of the first things I learned as a legislator is that you need an incredible team, right? You need an incredible team to do this work. And so often I work on issues where I feel people's voices have not been heard. And I think you highlighted that, you know, I think there's several examples when we found the 10,000 untested kits, right? Those were voices that were never heard, that never had a path to justice. And that's an example of for me, a very broken system that there's not one fix. You know, I I tend to like to work on complex issues that require a lot of people at the table and and often multiple bills. Um, 
if you look at the sexual assault survivors, we created the SAFE task force, which is now run by the attorney general and around the table are survivors and providers and law enforcement. You know, we've really brought together these teams of experts to create a trauma-informed system. And when you think about that, that's a big, that's a big thing to take on, right? That's from the point where um, somebody's seeking help, maybe at a hospital or law enforcement, to did they have a path to justice? And so, so one of the things I've really tried to do is, is work with survivors or people that have been impacted and work with these large, pretty daunting systems. And Sometimes every year you take a few steps forward. You know, I, I know when we first started working on sexual assault survivors, we mandated every kit be tested and then we had a tracking system. And then we did trauma-informed training for law enforcement. Um, and we're, we have these additional steps we're, we're trying and, and uh, the state patrol has been a great partner. They have their high throughput lab up and running now. And, so every survivor's kit's tested within 45 days, but that took a huge team. Uh, you know, I work on like foreclosure prevention I started working on, and there's an incredible team of people. And I think we have moved probably eight to 10 pieces of legislation and funding of these complex systems with banks and homeowners and advocates. And so for me, that's where I feel like I can make a difference is to bring people to the table and make sure the voices are heard and that the policies we really push forward are gonna be real changes. How has the foreclosure prevention worked out during the pandemic? You know, we were really concerned. You know, I started working on foreclosure prevention during the Great Recession. And I had neighborhoods in my district where there were three or four homes. Um, at risk of being foreclosed on. And there was no true system in place. People couldn't reach anyone at the banks. Um, you know, they weren't given enough time to try to like reconfigure their loan or find other solutions. And so we were able to set up free counseling for all homeowners and then a mediation program. And the question we faced with the pandemic was the way we paid for all these things were through a fee to the bank when a bank put a homeowner in foreclosure. So when we started uh, with the pandemic and we started doing all the forbearances, which I'm very grateful for, you know, the priority was really keep people in their homes. It also stopped all the funding for the program. And so we did have some, you know, again, you would never anticipate, right, that you would end up without funding. And so I, I'm really grateful because I feel like the state and the federal government were able to step in and help us with the funding because we wanted to make sure that the counseling and the mediation was robust. Uh, we were worried that once the forbearances end, that there could be a number of people impacted. And we also really the last several years, and I when applaud Denise Rodriguez is we wanted to do better outreach to communities of color that often are more impacted. And so we've really developed a plan through um, her leadership of making sure that we provide notices in multiple languages that we're really reaching out to communities that historically have been very hard hit. So I feel like we made a lot of progress. We still don't know. I think we'll, we'll learn a lot in the next year to um, really what is the aftermath of the pandemic. I'm going to want to circle back to a number of the things I talked about during the introduction, but you mentioned language assistance. One of your key bills this session had to do with 
language access in schools. You know these better than I do, but I'll say it just for the listeners. You represent a district where well over 100 languages are spoken. Is that correct? Yes, I have one school Um, district in Kent that has 170 languages spoken. That is amazing. The bill you sponsored is going to go a long way, I, I think, to help young people uh, with their educations. And do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, thank you. And I'm so glad you brought this up. The language access bill was my top priority this session. And we had a team working on it for five years. And it started in Kent. And it started an agency called Open Doors. We started one Saturday. We spent the day with 20 families. These were immigrant families uh, where English was not their first language. And I heard stories. I heard stories from these families um, that they didn't feel welcome in the school or they weren't able to participate in their students' education. A lot of these parents had children that were intellectually and developmentally disabled. And you know, as part of their learning process, there's these complex learning contracts called IEPs, these individualized educational plans. And they actually, weren't able to participate in in these key, very complex plans. And I can tell you as a parent, they're very difficult. And I, I have an MSW in their heart. And that was really harmful to their children. You know, there's safety issues, there's learning objectives. So it was really eye-opening to me and it was very heartbreaking, the stories. And so that's kind of how we started working on this. And we brought in the Kent School District who was really receptive. And what we realized is though our schools are all required by state and federal law to provide language access, they didn't necessarily have the tools. They didn't know what the best practices were. We didn't have necessarily interpreters that were trained around education language. You know, we do that in the medical professions and in courts, but there's very specific language. And so we're able to bring this incredible team together. And it was brought together by the office of the superintendent and the office of the educational ombuds to really look at what we should be doing in our schools. And they they worked for a number of years and they came back to us with these incredible recommendations. And I call it tools for schools, and it has really our state level looking at what are the best practice policies and procedures around language access. It sets up training for interpreters and credentialing so that we know they have the skill set, and it does it at no cost because we know we need more. We need more interpreters in our schools, and so we need to make sure there's no barriers. You know, it also set up training for new teachers and educators and front desk staff so that they know how to access languages and how to welcome families. And so it's been a long journey and I, our team grew and I'm just so proud that we were able just to team up with senators that, you know, I just need to do a shout out for Senator Wilson, who's just amazing in this area and Senator Trudeau. And I'm just really proud of the work we did and that we finally got into the governor after five years, the family stayed with us and they, and I'm just so grateful to have been part of that. If people want to look it up, there is a video featuring you, Senator Wilson and Senator Trudeau talking about this particular issue. It goes into more detail than we'll be able to hear. So anybody interested, I encourage them to go to your website and find a link to that video. You know, some of the most powerful testimony 
I heard on the legislation was from, from students, you know, students who were asked to be the interpreters. Students should never be in that position. And what's so interesting to me is when I started meeting the professionals that are interpreters, many had their story where they started out as a student and how harmful that was to them and how uncomfortable that was for their family. And so I, I've learned so much for so many families and professionals that have been personally impacted. And I, I really feel like um, these are some important steps forward that, that we make sure we're bringing in very well-trained interpreters. With many bills, a bill was, will be passed and then it goes into effect way in the future. How soon is, is this bill going to start having an impact in Washington state schools? Well, I know they'll be doing some of the policy work right away. That, that'll happen in the next years, but the schools will not be required to adopt these plans um, for a couple school years. Other changes that happen on its journey is that some of the smaller school districts are excluded from having to adopt these plans. And I, they're not excluded from the requirement of language access and supporting families, but they don't necessarily need to do the adoption of these plans. And the other key piece was really collecting data so that we know, like, what, what are the languages parents speak? and how are the schools providing the services they need. So I think we're going to also learn a lot um, from the data collection. I did a little research on this bill a few weeks ago for a different project I was working on, and I learned that approximately one out of seven people in this state is an immigrant, the great majority from non-English speaking countries. So it highlights how important a bill like this is. Absolutely. And, you know, I just think we should be doing everything we can to support parents. It's so good for students to have their parents involved in their education. And it really is about kids at the end of the day, being successful and being supported. So again, I, I think we made progress. This is probably an area that's going to need more work, but we, we had a good starting point. I want to ask you now about an issue that is very different from language access, and that is suicide prevention. You've worked on many suicide prevention efforts over the years. The latest and possibly one of the most important has to do with preventing suicide among our veterans. One of my highest priorities is supporting the men and women who serve in the military. My dad was a World War II veteran, and I grew up on in Oak Harbor, thanks to the military base where most of my family and friends served. And so it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. And as a mental health professional and having sponsored a number of bills around suicide prevention, and of course, probably the biggest one I'm still working on is around 988. But one of the highest risk groups is actually veterans. We know that if you are a service member, that you are 52% more likely to take your life by suicide than a peer who has never served. I started looking at more detail and we have state statistics and, you know, I think we lost 230 veterans in 2018 and 80 of those were between the ages of 20 and 34. And it's just so heartbreaking and it, it tells us what are the strategies, what are the the action steps we should be taking as a state to save lives. And I've been very fortunate. I was part of the governor's action team on suicide prevention for veterans. Um, it was run by our Department of Veterans Affairs that do amazing work. 
and they made sure there was just a whole group of us. We started meeting in 2019, and these are people like work at the Veterans Administration. These are counselors. These are veterans. Just a whole range of just incredibly dedicated professionals and veterans. And so we came up with this action plan. So the bill that's actually been two years trying to pass, and it passed this year, uh, 1181, was really that action plan. And it really came down to four things that we really focused on. The first one is ask the question, and it could be our state agencies, it could be healthcare providers in the community, but we find that 70% of veterans that take their life by suicide are served outside the Veterans Administration, which means we really need to know who are our veterans. Do they have family members that have served? So we can really uh, make sure we're giving them the right supports and services that they need. What complements that is the Department of Veterans Affairs is actually going to be creating all kinds of materials and help link these folks to services. So they'll be working closely with DSHS and the healthcare providers so that they get the information they need to follow up. The second piece is lethal means. We've been working on this a number of years. University of Washington led a work group that we're continuing. And it looks both at firearms and medications and how do we have these secured and, and how do we educate people on the importance of that when somebody's suicidal. The third component, which I think is kind of the heart of the bill is veteran peer services. And I've heard from so many veterans and they said, you know, we're glad you thank us for our service, but if you really wanna thank us, do more peer services because we often feel so isolated. You know, I hear stories that they had this camaraderie when they served and then they come back to the States and they feel alone and isolated and that these peer programs, and we have a number of wonderful ones in the state, are places where they can reconnect and they can have that friendship and they, they feel heard and they feel understood. So it had a big grant program so we can really expand the, the veteran peer service programs and then the final component was around 988, which, you know, I've been working really hard to make sure our state's prepared when the three-digit number starts in July. And so we have the Department of Veterans Affairs creating a 988 emblem that will be sold that you can put on your license plate, which will help raise money to support these veteran programs. And then the second piece, which was from a bill that Representative Barno did, was around 988 signs. So that was the core bill, but something else happened to the bill when it was in the other chamber. And I, I often don't say Senate because you get gaveled down on the floor, but it was, um, I had worked with the Secretary of State's office around a, a war memorial on the campus of Olympia. And, and Secretary Hobbs is, is a veteran. He has served our country for many years. And this is really important to him to recognize people that served in Iraq and Afghanistan and other wars over the last 20 years in our country. And so we added language to the veteran suicide prevention bill around the memorial so we can start raising dollars. But one of the things we did that I thought was really interesting and feedback from the director of Department of Veterans Affairs is to make sure that part of the memorial, maybe it's a reflection pond or fountain is going to be to acknowledge the losses of suicide. If you look, and I mentioned earlier, the number of veterans we lose between the age of 20 and 34, those are the ones that served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And 
So we lose four times as many veterans to suicide than we did in the combat of those years. And so we want to make sure there's a place to heal and acknowledge that, that families and veterans can go to. And I, my understanding, it would be the first in the country that really does both of those things within one memorial. And so really honored to, to work with the Secretary of State on this and that that became part of this bill. I do believe it's a way we can acknowledge and remember and heal. You mentioned the 988 hotline, but there's a good chance that people haven't ever heard of the 988 hotline. And that's one problem, I suppose. Well, 988 is actually started at the federal level. It is a three-digit number someone would call if they're having a behavioral health crisis or suicidal. And that could be the person experiencing it or a family member. So it started at the federal level. It becomes live in July. Basically, we've had these suicide hotlines in our country, and there there are seven-digit numbers, and they will be connected to these three-digit 988. But for our state, and I think around the country, we're really seeing this as an opportunity to rethink our crisis system. And we often, sadly to say, when people are experiencing behavioral health crisis, there are parts of our system that actually can further traumatize someone. Often people, maybe they're feeling suicidal and a police officer shows up to their home and they don't feel safe. That that isn't, um, that police officer may or may not be trained around mental health, most are not. Or they're, they're taken to an emergency room where they might say, you know, sit eight to 10 hours, which is further traumatic as well. And so I think there's an acknowledgement that there's three things we can really do around 988. And I'm really proud we passed the bill 1477 last session. Um, Senator Dinger and I really teamed up on that and a huge number of advocates. There's three components of it. One is we have three of these suicide hotlines in our state and they will become the 988 lines. And we want to make sure when that three-digit number is available that we can actually pick up the phone in our state because if we don't, it goes to another state. And we want to answer those calls. And so the first thing we're doing is we're doubling in size, these call centers. And we're also adding components like follow-up. Unlike 911, which is an incredible system, their focus is to dispatch people as quickly as they can to this emergency. I think their hope is like within 120 seconds. The 988 line, their focus is actually to help do an intervention on the phone. I think 80 to 90% of their calls, they actually can resolve through a clinician talking to someone. They do a suicide assessment. They're triaging what that person needs. And often it can be resolved on the, the call. So we want to make sure our call centers are robust, that people are answering those calls. The second part is outreach. Maybe 10 to 20% need to see someone. How do we have a rapid response? Often urban areas like King County and Pierce County have a lot of services, but you get to rural Washington where actually the suicide rate is higher than the urban areas and they may not have the same amount of services. And so our commitment on 988 is we want a responsive system wherever you are in the state, we want you to get the help you need. And so we'll be creating these crisis response teams or enhancing them. We want to specialize maybe around children and youth. We have a very unique partnership in our state with the tribes, and we have the first 988 tribal line in the country, and they'll be working to expand crisis services. So that's the second component. 
The third component is actually crisis alternatives to emergency department. One, we're looking at hospital models that are non-emergency where people can come in. There's one in Providence in Everett. And I went to visit it and you go and there's this wonderful waiting room. You're greeted by a peer who sits with you and talks with you. And then there's social workers, there's prescribers, you get whatever you need during that visit, including a next day appointment. And so we have these models, but they're not all over the state. So we want different alternatives to emergency rooms and we want freestanding ENTs, these kind of non-institutional community-based services. And so like I'm working with CMAR and other agencies that really can provide maybe some really unique community grounded services to people in crisis. So those are the three components and it's gonna take time. They won't all be up and running by July, but our hope is over the next two or three years that they'll truly be this very responsive system. I used to say the word trauma-informed, right? But I actually heard the other day, heal-informed. We want these places to be healing, right? Healing-informed care where people feel safe and supported. So. It's this huge transformation in our system and we're just starting, but we are starting by increasing the call centers so that they can really respond to the volume of calls they'll get in July. We talked about 988, but I know that another bill that you sponsored had to do with improving the statewide 911 system. What needed to be done to improve it? Well, thank you. And, you know, I've learned about a lot more about 911 over the last couple of years working on 988. In fact, I went out to Valleycom, which is one of my 911 operators, and I was so moved by the professionalism. You know, I cannot begin to imagine the secondary stress that people have who do this work and how difficult it is. And again, you know, trying to understand the 911 systems, and as you can imagine, is that changes need to happen over time just around technology. We have a great 911 system in our state, and I know it took years to build, uh, but we want to keep it the best. And so, again, you know, there's different ways of advancing technology of the 911 system. The other thing that was really important that was included in the bill is adding our nine, our newly hired, hopefully 988 statewide coordinator to really be working and on the advisory group with 911. Uh, Some of the work we're doing now is actually meetings with whiteboards where you have the 911 operators, the 988 Um, clinicians, uh, EMS, law enforcement, working on protocols. How are they going to work together? When when does a call need to be 911 versus 988? What outreach teams go? Does a co-responder team that maybe has law enforcement and behavioral health go out or is it just behavioral health? And so strengthening 911 and also understanding its relationship to 988 we're looking at cross-training. We're looking at, you know, should some of the 988 operators in large urban areas be cited at 911 so that they really work together? So anyway, it's been exciting and I've just learned a lot. And again, we have a great system in our state and we just really want to keep it strong and, and make the changes they need for that. One thing that unites 911 and 988 is that they're both about emergencies or crises. And that's something that law enforcement personnel also deal with a lot. You've introduced and sponsored some legislation. I would put it under the broad umbrella of police reform, but I think that it's more specific than that. Can you talk about how those efforts are going? 
Yes, thank you. And I, I appreciate you acknowledging, you know, that, you know, as someone who works in mental health, that partnership between law enforcement and behavioral health is so important. And I certainly saw that over the last year, that if there isn't clarity on that relationship, um, sometimes people with mental health issues um, do not maybe get transported to where they need to go for care. And so one of the things is I really teamed up with my colleagues, um, Representative Goodman and Representative Johnson, really to look at, you know, what should the protocols be between law enforcement and behavioral health? And we were able to work to kind of have clarifying language because again, when I, I went out with two co-responders teams, there's one in South King County and there's one in Bellevue. And, you know, there was one situation where a family had called, they were worried about their son. He was a veteran and they thought he was having some behavioral health issues. So we went to um, the family home where he was staying temporarily and there was like a huddle. And we stood there with law enforcement and EMS and behavioral health uh, and, and said, well, what's the plan? And behavioral health, the social worker said, you know, we'd like to go in first, but would you stay? We don't know if he's suicidal. We don't know if he has a weapon. So it would be helpful if we think it might um, be a difficult situation. And so we were able to go in and we were able to talk to him and um, it was okay. And he was able to do a follow-up appointment. But what I realized, you know, in the interim is how important it is that they know how to work together and that there's clarity in the, the law. So I was really glad to help out on the bill we moved this year that provides that clarity in the working relationship. The other thing I worked on that was in the operating budget, I've been working on it a couple of years is like, how do you strengthen that relationship between law enforcement and the community? And I'm a social worker and I have social work interns every year in my office and there's learning contracts where we say, what are they gonna learn while they're here? And I thought, well, what if new officers had community placements and they had learning contracts where they could learn from the community you know, early on before they become an officer. And so I approached uh, Police Chief Padella in Kent and he was so excited about the idea uh, we talked about, you know, these community placements and mentorships. And um, so we, we set up to kind of create a partnership with the community. We also invited University of Washington Tacoma and they came up with the learning contract and they actually um, evaluate, are evaluating the program to see how it works. And I was really excited. I, I was, it was kind of interesting when I talked about police officers having mentors um, Chief Padella says, yeah, you know, we love to mentor youth. And it's like, no, actually the officers would have the mentors, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, again, you know, really having that community leadership. And so I got to go to a graduation at the Criminal Justice Training Commission, which is down the street from me, of the first officer that went through this community immersion program, uh, Officer Kumar. And he um, spent 60 days at the Seattle World Relief where he helped uh, refugees from Afghanistan. And I met with uh, Seattle World Relief and they love him so much. So he had a great experience. And then he went to his, his training at the commission. And so I was able to, to meet with him and have lunch with him. And um, he actually said that he picked the Kent Police Department because of this program, that he was so excited that they were embracing diversity. And so since 
since uh, Officer Kumar has been through the program, seven more officers have gone through. And again, you know, I kind of see that these officers really are going to have these really strong bonds with the community and that they can be almost like navigators for other officers maybe of how to connect with the community and have ongoing dialogue. And so I'm really excited. I think there's a hope that after we see the evaluation that maybe this is something we can take to other parts of the state and uh, look at it as maybe a, a best practice. This is the kind of thing that can take place without a specific bill being sponsored that you can also accomplish as a person who works with the Appropriations Committee to have some money included in the budget to fund an idea. Yes, and I think that's a good way of putting it. You know, sometimes we do have ideas of of work and, you know, starting on a small scale, like starting at the city of Kent you know, we can learn, like, how would you do it? For a fairly modest amount of money, we can really see how does this work and, and is it successful? And so I was really grateful for the support and the budget to, to be able to do that. I just realized we're out of time. I hate to cut you off like this, but I suspect that you've got other things that you need to be doing anyway. Thank you, Representative Tina Orwall, for coming by once again, to be on Capital Ideas, when I have you as a guest, they're always outstanding. I appreciate it, Tina. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's always an honor to be uh, on your show and just grateful for all the work you do. Thank you. And another episode of Capital Ideas is in the books. If you stuck around for the whole thing, you fit the description exactly of a Capital Ideas subscriber. You can hit that button on whichever platform you like to use, and if you do, you'll never miss another one. This is your state government. What happens here matters. The more you know about how it works, the better it can work for you and for the people and issues you care about. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House. Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thank you for your time.